Hi there. Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to tell you about an issue of Design Museum Magazine we're working on and how you can help. The issue is called The Policing Issue, How One of the Most Powerful Institutions Functions by Design, out later this spring. You can help this special issue come to life via Kickstarter. With your support, it'll feature 16 artists, designers, researchers, and writers of color paid for their contributions to this special edition of the magazine. The policing issue will explore the relationships between design and policing, from the physical objects currently in use by officers, to the ways in which design perpetuates unjust practices rooted in policing. And we'll even talk about the design of the protest movement. Help us raise $20,000 between March 1st and March 30th to help make this special issue happen and help us make important impact with this content. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on support our Kickstarter campaign to learn more and make your pledge. Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Every week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. Thankfully, we always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and together we interview a guest about their work in design, because design is everywhere. And so are we. This week, we're talking about user research and empathy and how designers can use empathy as a tool to help people, help users. Joining us today are two experts in user research. We have Renee Geraci, a senior manager at Autodesk, and Jen Schaefer, the director of user experience at Optum. We're going to learn how they've incorporated empathy into their work in design. But before we dive in, some news from the Design Museum. We are beginning a live podcast series where each month listeners will be able to listen to the podcast as we record before the episode airs. And this is a chance for you all to ask your questions live for the guests, which is always a lot of fun. So it's a live show and you can be there to be part of a Design is Everywhere podcast episode. Join us for our March live podcast recording on March 19th at 12 p.m. Eastern time. We have Kate Muse and Cliff Selbert, both environmental graphic designers, both part of SEGD, and we're gonna be talking about experiential graphic design in the real world, wayfinding, interiors, branding. Kate and Cliff are really experts on this topic. I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. You can get your ticket if you're a member on designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on events. If you're not a member, join and you'll get access to our live podcast events and you get all kinds of other cool stuff too, like Design Museum Magazine and more. So check it all out on our website, designmuseumeverywhere.org. And with that, on to this week's topic, user research and empathy. In past episodes, we've chatted about user experience and how designers interpret inputs to design outcomes and make things accessible and easier for the end user. We've seen this a lot with the digital transformation of the healthcare system with tools like telemedicine in the last year. And while there's no doubt that technology can help bridge the user experience, is technology always the answer? Joining me today as guest co-host, we have Renee Geraci. Renee currently leads the research and operations team at Autodesk's Architecture, Engineering, and Construction Design Organization. Previously, she led the UX Advanced Development Team at Bose, and she serves as a lecturer at Tufts University Gordon Institute in a master's class in innovation management. Renee is also a member of Design Museum's Council. She began her career with a bachelor's in history from the University of Pittsburgh and her master's in public international affairs. And now as a lifelong learner and student of human behavior, Renee's designs turned customer insights into successful products. Renee, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. It's great to be here. Let's start with your background in history. What led to research and design? Yeah, so maybe I should take just one mini step back and give you a little bit of context. Please. I was born in Kansas, which for our international listeners is right in the middle of the U.S., 
And I was born in a community to a family that had, um, my grandparents had lived in Kansas during the Great Depression. And so they were like hard scrub people, you know, like they had seen stuff. And there was a lot of focus in our family on culture and community, making things with your hands, bringing ingenuity to the things that you make. And there was also just a lot of storytelling, storytelling about our ancestors, what we had experienced as a people. And I grew up with that, those loves, you know, that sort of drive to, to making things, drive toward sharing things, looking after the people in my community, and also just the drive towards like a, having a curiosity about other people that had a big impact on me. Then uh, the other thing that happened as a kid was we moved around a lot when I, when I was a kid. And so you'll, I think you'll hear this story from a lot of researchers. What happens when you move around a lot is that you get really good at making friends, but you also get really good at learning about people and observing people. And so as a kid, I developed this ability to be part of group, but also observe the group, look outside of myself and to better understand uh, human behavior uh, and to be really curious about why people did things, like their motivations, uh, their their behaviors, like how they feel about the world. And so that led to me going into history. And at that point, you know, I was a young adult. I wanted to learn all the things about all the people. And, and so I studied economics and culture. And when I got out of co uh, college, I thought, well, what do I want to do now? I, I still want to learn. And so that that's what led me to doing research. And when I first got out of college, I was doing market research. I was doing a lot of, you know, just asking people through surveys, how do you feel about X product or X thing? And that was okay, but <laughs> it wasn't rich enough. And so I had a great mentor, um, Yvonne Campos, who introduced me to qualitative research. And that's really where my career took off. Maybe you can, for our listeners who aren't familiar with design research or user research, can you kind of help define that, like put some bounds on it so we can understand it together. Sure. User research is a term that refers to a broad discipline of understanding the people who use products, services, and experiences or who go through experiences. If you hear me referring to, to users, that's, that's what I'm referring to. It's the people. So user research may entail or could entail any number of methodologies. I could be studying your behavior. So let's say I want to better understand your use of your mobile phone. I could look at your, your usage data, you know, how many times you use your phone, for how long. I could uh, look at how you use your phone, how you physically interact with your phone. And a lot of times that would entail, say, like a usability study or an observational study. It could entail, I, I could ask you what you think about your phone and how you think about what your opinion of the apps and services that you use. And so user research, um, it re refers to a lot of different methods. And those methods are, are important at different phases of, say, product development or service development. There are some user researchers who just do usability testing. There are some user researchers who look into the future and they try to predict or forecast how people will be behaving in the future and what unmet needs they'll have. But you don't have to be a researcher to do user research. A lot of designers, uh, product managers, product owners, uh, experienced designers are doing user research. Sometimes they don't even realize it. I'm curious, you know, maybe in, in your current role at Autodesk or even in past, like who is the audience then for that work, that research work that you are putting together? 
Yes. So we have multiple audiences. One audience, I won't even call them an audience, is it, our partners. Mm. And we, back in the old days, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, as a researcher, you would get a question and you would be sent off. You would spend quite a lot of time and you'd come back with the answers. And it was a long deck or it was a big tome. It was a big book of, you know, of, of answers. And it wasn't the most ideal way for your partners who had to take that that knowledge and act on it. It wasn't a great way for them to digest it or to really own it. So increasingly, um, we, especially at, at uh, Bose and now I'm at Autodesk, we involve our partners as much as possible. And so we bring our partners into the field with us or they participate in the interviews with us. They help us draft the questions that we're going to ask. They help us analyze the data and develop insights. And this is a much better output than any report could have ever been. Sometimes you get to the end of a, of a project and you realize you don't even need to write the report because you've accomplished what you've hoped to accomplish. You've grown customer expertise or empathy. Yeah, through in, that experience. Through the experience, yeah, yeah. Now, another customer of our work is are the actual customers, the people who use our products. So at, at Autodesk, we think a lot about the customer research experience as well as the customer experience because it all ties together. We spend so much energy on improving the in-product experience, but if the research experience is really horrible, then you know we've really missed it's, it's, it. We just can't do that. Right, yeah, because that's an extension of the product experience, the brand. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so a lot of times after we finish a project, we do what we call a, a customer share back or a closing the loop share back. And we share back with our customers what we learned. This, this is what we heard from you, and this is what we're doing about it. And I think it's, it's just good for um, the relationship with your customers and for growing trust over time. Yeah, does that? It almost feels like you're building a community then more than just sort of like a one way we're studying you versus yeah. like you're part of this with us. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I did have an aha moment as a researcher. I used to think about our customers as people who would participate in my research projects. <laughs> <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah. And no, then... <laughs> and it's very valid. You know, who wouldn't think that? And then and, and of course, this was all in the interest of making things better for our customers, improving the products, or improving the services, helping to meet their future needs. But then I had an aha moment and I realized, oh, we need to be doing so much more. And so our research practice at, at Autodesk has really evolved to think about that whole life cycle of the customers. Now, going back to your question, another customer of our work are executives and senior level decision makers. And for those, for that audience, we do summarize the work, but we can't just give them a, a PowerPoint deck, right? So <laughs> we also, the, the executives, especially at Autodesk, they, we have such a strong customer culture at Autodesk. And so they really do want to understand how our customers' lives are changing. And so, um, let it, you know, we, we'll try to summarize it as much as possible, or we'll create these events for executives to talk to customers directly. Hmm. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> One issue I always had, and maybe this is the desire me, but you've all, you're an, you're an innovator yourself, you're an information architect, you've mentored and coached. Like when I would do user visits, I'd want to help solve their problem <laughs> right then and there. And I wonder, um, how, how do you how do you keep that part of your 
you know, the innovator in you, like silent when you're just like absorbing information. It is so hard there, especially whenever you think about empathy, this is doing in-person interviews or uh, in situational, you know, in situ interviews is an act of growing your empathy and your understanding of the full context of your customer's life or work or experience, whatever you're designing for. When you go into someone's space, you immediately turn on the empathy. It's not an empathy switch. Hopefully we're all empathetic <laughs> We're all people. empathetic. Yeah. You crank it up, maybe. <laughs> you crank it up, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, and so you naturally want to fix things for people. And I think it just requires a lot of self-discipline. You know, I, I can't fix things in this moment because it will, in essence, change the experience and it will change the quality of the interview. There are a lot of things that we do as user researchers to maintain a friendly but non-biased relationship with customers. We, as researchers, we think a lot about how we interact with customers in the moment because you can completely bias an interview if you come across as too friendly or flirtatious or, you know, uh, an authority that can completely change what people tell you and the, the amount of information that they share with you or the amount of insights that you gather. So if you're, you're too busy performing or trying to fix things for people, you're not listening. So you have to have a lot of self-discipline and, you know, an interview can, is a very thoughtful interaction. You're trying to answer the questions that you laid out ahead of time while trying to maintain the right social interaction with the customer that you're interviewing while also thinking about the next step. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. So complex. It's exhausting, <laughs> but it's wonderful. It's yeah. it's so much fun. Sometimes when we bring our partners into the field, if they've not been trained to do research, we provide some training to them or we give them a job. Like we ask, you know, if you're like an engineer and you don't really love talking to strangers, we'll give you a camera so you can record the whole session so that you feel like you're part of it. But the pressure's off of that person. Yeah. I found in this, you know, for for many things, like more experience and practice was so crucial in order to like build the muscles around like being objective and not jumping in the solution space with people. But I often just was like, just surprised. And I treasure those moments of being able to do that user research. It was basically over two years at Bose because I also like learned just to be more of an objective person. It's like I met someone who didn't enjoy listening to music and I had never imagined that that could exist. Right. But you start to learn, uh, you, you just see the assumptions and your own background and life experience that you bring to something when you connect with people outside your family, outside, you know, and these we connected with hundreds of people. Yeah. And it's just amazing to observe human behavior in that way. It's almost like a privilege kind of. I think it is. I think it is. It's really it's a good way of, of thinking about it. I have to say that my own research practice has evolved. So I used to find that I was in a position where I had to try to advocate for this uh, as part of a, a development process. And I would say many years ago, there were more designers who felt like they had the vision and customers didn't know what they wanted or they weren't very good at expressing it. And that can be true. But I find that most more times than not, the development of the product or the experience, the design of it, the design of that experience is so much richer and it's so much more 
it meets the user's needs much better and it's more long lasting or it has better longevity if user needs or the user context was in, taken into consideration from the very beginning. Yeah, do you? I love that because I think there is this misconception. And if you think people like Dr. Bose, people like uh, Steve Jobs, who are like, we don't, do, we don't talk to customers because the customer doesn't know what they want. It seems like there's a misconception that, that these folks think that the customer is going to be like, I want an iPhone, which is not what you're asking, right? You're observing right. And, and pulling out insights. They're not going to tell you <laughs> exactly. That's where the interpretation, I, I assume, comes into play. I think so, yeah. Doing forward look or future-oriented research or exploratory research is pretty challenging for that reason. People mm -hmm. are not very predict good predictors of their future behaviors. However, they can give you clues to how they'll be behaving in the future. And some people give you better clues than others. Like early adopters are really motivated to solve specific problems, and they're always trying to get the next thing that will help them solve that problem. And they're great beacons for how other people might be behaving in the future. They might be off, but you know, like there's a way of, of doing that. But to the point of like the Steve Jobs and the Dr. Boses of the world, I will admit that customers aren't always great at reporting on their own behavior. And right. that's where I think the discipline of user experience has grown over the last few years. Uh, when I first started off, I was doing a lot of mobile phone testing. We would ask people, tell me everything that you did with your phone last week. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> do you remember what you ate for lunch like yeah. four days ago, Sam? No. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, technology has actually helped us to, uh, to evolve the user research practice. We now have mobile diary devices. We can now observe telemetry or usage data. Uh, we can ask in-context questions. You know, whenever you get those um, like annoying in-product experience questions, like, oh, yeah. would, you be, would you be likely to suggest Outlook <laughs> to a friend or family member? Right. Those kinds, I mean, it's, uh, I'm, I'm joking about that question, but uh, those kinds of things can get us closer to getting feedback in the moment. Yeah. And can, it, it makes user research more accurate and trustworthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I love this topic. I could talk about it forever because this is the core of, of human-centered design. So this is great. Thank you, Renee, for sharing. My pleasure. Listeners, if you'd like to learn more about Renee's work, check out autodesk.com. And Renee, please stick around and we'll bring Jen Schaefer into the conversation after a quick break. If you like this podcast, check out our Kickstarter campaign for our latest magazine special issue. It's called The Policing Issue how one of the most powerful institutions functions by design, out later this spring. At the Design Museum, we're always working on projects that explore the transformative power of design, whether it's our educational programs, the Workplace Innovation Summit, our books. This magazine is no exception. We're tackling how institutions are defined by their design. With your support on Kickstarter, it will feature 16 artists, designers, researchers, and writers of color who will pay for their contributions to this special issue. The policing issue will explore the relationships between design and policing, from the physical objects currently in use by officers to the ways in which the design process perpetuates unjust practices rooted in policing, all the way to the design of the protest movement. Help us raise $20,000 between March 1st and March 30th to make this happen. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on our Kickstarter campaign. Okay, we're back and we're joined by our special guest, Jen Schaefer. Jen is the Director of User Experience at Optum, 
She has over 18 years of experience designing and developing digital applications. Before joining Optum, Jen was a UX designer at Wells Fargo and Factor UE. Prior to that, she ran her own UX design consulting business, working with Target, Human Factors International, Prize Financial, Motorola, Goodrich, and more. Jen recently wrote a great article for Design Museum Magazine called United Health Group and Optum Emphasize the Care in Healthcare, where she and her team are focused on human-centered design to develop digital products in healthcare. A problem solver at heart, Jen tackles design problems with user research and insight. Jen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Sam, for having me. For our audience who might not know what Optum is or about your kind of role, can you tell us a bit about Optum and your role there as the director of user experience? So Optum is a leading information and technology-enabled health services business. Uh, we are a part of United Health Group along with United Healthcare. Optum has more than 190,000 team members worldwide, and I'm one of them. I'm a user experience director in our Optum Technology Group. And my role is to lead user experience teams and partner with our, our clients, our products, our product clients, to make sure that we are creating the most efficient and effective user experience possible. So we create a cross-functional team. Obviously, design is a pretty big part of that, but we also include research, accessibility, and sometimes front-end development. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah, I want right from the off the bat here. I want to one of the quotes from the article was, "Designing digital healthcare solutions is less about technology and more about people." For someone who doesn't know about this work, might think digital healthcare. That's all technology. Why is it more about people? Because we have people using it. And um, I think, you know, we're so enmeshed and immersed in technologies these days. And I think it can be, we kind of take it for granted um, because it's all around us for, for most of us. Um, but I think where it gets really important is when we're designing for others and creating for others, because we can fall into the trap of thinking about us ourselves as the end user. Um, and so when we really identify who's going to be using the technology, who's going to benefit from it, and then understand who they are, then we have an opportunity to empathize with their situation and really create something that's going to work for them. Yeah. It does feel like it's one of like the main traps of being a designer is thinking like, I know everything I need to know to design X thing, even if I'm not the actual user of X thing, like right. where does that confidence come from? It's maybe for you and Renee, like why, why is that even, because as Renee was sharing a bit in the first segment, and I had to do this as well in my past career as a designer, like really had to advocate for research. And it's like, how did we do this before research? Right. <laughs> I think we had a lot of products that just didn't really meet customer needs. It was a case where customers would learn how to use the products versus us, you know, product and service designers or experience designers rising up to meet the customer's expectations or their needs. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So you end up with a lot of products that, you know, are difficult. Not everyone can use them. You know, that's mm -hmm. uh, so it was encouraging to see Jen's article and to see that it's being done so well. Yeah, I, I do want to get into some of the stories from the article, in particular, like shadowing some of the healthcare professionals. But before we do, I wonder if you can kind of give us more of an overview of the research process at Optum, um, kind of set the stage. Sure. So it can vary. Um, there's all sorts of different research 
activities that we can do to learn more about the user. Um, for this particular article, we focused heavily on being side by side with the case managers and observing them doing their work firsthand. Uh, right now, during the pandemic, doing that, that in-person observation is really difficult, but we can still use virtual technology to watch people work from a technology standpoint. We can ask them to take a picture of their work environment so that we get a sense of where they're working. Uh, we can obviously interview them. Um, and then there's surveys and card sorts. Uh, there's all sorts of things that we can do. So it really depends on what kind of information we're trying to gather. But for this particular engagement, it was really heavily focused on, on the observation part. Yeah, set us up. I, I want to hear about your work with Rain Higgins. So Rain is a case manager in rural Kansas, and she works for a community care program. She is responsible for between 50 and 100 members. And these are members that are receiving government assistance. And as part of our program, we check in on them to make sure that they are getting all of the services they need. Um, they likely need long-term support. So Rain is checking in with her members you know, over the course of many years and um, you know, maybe, maybe forever for as long as Rain is working. Mm -hmm. um, and she's making sure that they have social services like they have transportation if they need it to go to and from doctor's appointments. If they need help with medication management, she'll work with them and she'll just be checking in on their general welfare. And then as part of our program, she is required to do regular assessments just to make sure that they are taking care of themselves and they don't have any medical needs that aren't being addressed. So Rain has her list of members and she drives around Kansas and checks in on her members at, at the appropriate time. So it's not every day, not every month, but you know, every few months there's a regular schedule that she's checking on them. Mm -hmm. So you are shadowing Rain and others. What was your goal? Is there like a product goal you have that you're trying to learn about in order to get somewhere? They're using our technology. And we had rolled out something that was a little bit newer. And there were some little hiccups that weren't in alignment with how case managers like Rain do their work. So our goal was to understand what they do all day. What are the goals that they have? What are the tasks that they have? So that we could make suggestions to better align the technology to how they work. Nice. And is this like, it's like a soft software product that they're right. like using with their, right. yeah. So it's like, yeah. you really do want to observe them, not only using the tool, but connecting with the people that then they're inputting the information. It's kind of an ecosystem. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And then on top of that, rain is in rural Kansas where cell phone signals aren't working very well. So, you know, when she's on the road and trying to do her intake and uh, any note taking, Connecting to the internet can be a challenge. So how, how do we support her there as well? And make sure she has not only the information she needs to care for her member, but she can also put the data into the system after, you know, after her visit. Yeah, it's funny. We talked about something different, but because you mentioned the problem with you could design a great tool. This was a, an episode about sales, but it was Greyhound Bus. They developed this amazing like iPad app for their drivers, never checked in on them. 
Turns out there, and everyone like was using the iPad as basically like a clipboard because they had no <laughs> cell service. So they're sure. using paper, which you have to learn by observing. So that's right. a surprise, right? I'm, I'm curious what you learned, what, what surprised you as you're shadowing folks? Well, as I mentioned in the article, um, the second day that I was with Rain, we pulled up to one of her members' homes and um, Rain had given all of her members advance notice that I would be I would be accompanying her on her visits. And we pull up and we see the member out in her front lawn and she's got two lawn chairs set up for us. And at that point, well, Rain and I are actually driving separately um, because I'm also shadowing one of her peers later in the day. We park and then she, you know, she, she mentions to me before we approach her member that um, her member has bed bugs and she uh, is a little worried about exposing us to, to her bed sure. and she just felt more comfortable with with doing the the visit outside so at that point rain had to open up her laptop uh on her lap while she's sitting in a lawn chair and uh you know log in and you know ask we we were doing assessments that day and so she had a lot of questions to ask her member and you know it's it's a bright sunny day we're sitting outside i don't know if you've ever tried to work outside on a sunny day but I, it's practically Difficult. impossible to see anything on a screen. Um, so, uh, you know, rain, rain figured out a way to make it work. But I think for me, one of the, you know, one of the more surprising things is um, I think had we not been able to observe rain in that situation, I don't know if she would have thought to tell us that that might happen. Right. right? So mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's happened to her before. I don't think she could have expected it, but it wouldn't really occur to many of us on the product team and the development team to say, well, are you ever going to work on this outside? Like, why would, yeah. why would we think <laughs> that that's a thing? You know, maybe, maybe we think that they work in their car, you know, maybe they're doing some note taking and, and data entry in their car post visit, but you know, to actually conduct an assessment outside was kind of beyond our scope of imagination. How did you go back and share all these rich findings with your internal partners? I mean, because the, the scene you describe is very specific and you felt mm -hmm. it and it stayed with you. It's like you've really, you're now empathetic to Rain and right. other people like them. How did you go back and give transfer that same level of empathy to your partners? I think uh, you have to be a good storyteller, right? Mm -hmm. So just being able to really recount those details. Um, I try to take photographs if I can, um, and, you know, photographs without exposing any sensitive uh, information. And I take copious notes. Um, I'm still a note taker by hand. So, um, you know, I take as many notes as I can. And at the same time, we're also trying to collect information, very specific information that's going to help us make some design decisions once we're, we're all done with our research. Um, but I think really just being able to, to share that as soon as possible, where it's still fresh in my memory. We do have debriefs at the end of the day as well with the design team. So that's really the first opportunity to share. Wow, you're not going to believe what just happened today. You know, it's, it's really, really exciting to be able to share those, those, those findings that are just so, so different from what you would expect. I've found that those debriefs are so crucial, especially timely debriefs. They do right. a number of things. Sometimes you see something, you miss something that your your colleague picks up, and by sharing it, you really develop a, a a more holistic understanding of the situation or of the the the, the humans environment, and right. and then it also helps you align on what your 
understanding of that situation is. I've been in interviews before with with peers where I have one story after the interview and they have another. <laughs> and if we had not met to decide upon a common point of view or at least decide what problem we were going to solve together, it would have caused all sorts of churn afterward. One of the things that we do when we're done with our research is we create user personas. And that is sort of an amalgamation of all of the, the people that we've done research with. And we include a photograph of uh, or an image of who that person is. Um, we make up a name and we really try to outline some of those pain points that maybe they're facing and some of the tasks that they have to do. And then we really, we want to circulate that with everybody on the team so that everybody understands who this person is, what they experience. So even though we've done a debrief with uh, the designers and the researchers on the team, by creating that persona, we can take that to the development team who might even be offshore. They might not even really fully have the concept of what a home visit might even be like. And then for us to be able to describe it with this persona and say, this is Melissa, uh, she is a case manager, and this is what her day is like. And it's through that that we can build empathy throughout the, the development team so that they, they understand and they can empathize with that user as they are building out the product. I've done a lot with personas and you know, I think you what you named the persona Melissa, mm -hmm. I think, in the mm -hmm. and I remember um in some of my past work, like creating those characters, right, as amalgamations of all that research, people on the design team and development team like start to talk about that, like those characters, right? They start to be like, you know who would really love this feature? Jill. And you're and as a researcher, you're like, they have internalized the research yeah. officially because in the in the in the lack of that they they're like well what do I think and it's like no no what does Jill think what does Melissa mm -hmm. think mm -hmm. have you seen that power I have and I strongly encourage our agile teams when they are working with requirements and user stories I strongly encourage them to use the persona name in in their in their user story creation so rather than saying as a user I need to have autosave uh, every every 30 seconds so I don't lose data. I'd rather the story say, as Melissa, I, I, need, I need that feature. Um, and again, I think that the picture makes such a big difference, especially when it's a demographic that is so much different from maybe the majority of the development team. We were brought in to do some research on a project a few years ago, um, and it was an authentication tool and a good number of our of our end users were retired and they needed to use this authenticator tool to access our online pharmacy and they were really struggling and so we did quite a bit of work to understand what some of those pain points were and it became clear that we had not accounted for that that demographic in our work um, and when you know you we have we have product requirements, we have business requirements, and we have a lot of information. We have market information, and we might even have some user information. But really, until we can see that person in front of us and really understand and empathize with them and, and how, how technology might be confusing or frustrating, we're not going to build a product that's going to meet their needs. Yeah, you're making me think about some of the COVID vaccine rollout <gasps> where, yes! you know, senior yes! citizens yes! are getting the vaccine first and they have to make an appointment online. And you're right. like, 
they're not online. And if you had done research, you would have known that. Right. So yeah, there I was that that is so top of mind right now because there's an article in the New York Times yesterday about people who were successful in getting appointments set up for their parents. And now they are offering their services to strangers because we've got the most vulnerable population. And we say to them, you're first in line for the vaccination, but now figure out the technology needed to make an appointment. And granted, you know, we're in a very unique situation and we need, we need to move quickly. So, you know, there's not the luxury of figuring out, well, if, if somebody, my dad, I use my dad in the, in the article as an example, but he actually did get his vac- his vaccination shot, his first one. He got it today. And it was only because my sister was able to set up the appointment, right? So very timely. You could take the approach that you're creating a screen-based experience. But I noticed that in the article and in you describing your team's approach that you think about it as service delivery. Right. Can you speak a little bit about that? Like, how did you, has it always been that way? Uh, what led you from thinking about how people experience this in the, the, in, in the app to really involving your practice to being a service delivery? Sure. That's a really great question. I think we've kind of morphed into service design. Um, at its base, service design is, is, is not very different from, from user-centered design. We still want to do our research up front. We want to ideate. Uh, we, you know, we want to do some prototyping and have a consistent feedback loop. When we take a service design approach, we're not just focusing on one end user. We're focusing on the service as a whole. So we have Rain in, in, in this example. She's a case manager. So she is one player in, in, the, in the bigger picture. And so Rain needs to use our technology to do her job. But in order for her to do her job, um, she needs a support system behind the scenes, um, a system that identifies the members that she needs to be working with, a system that determines how frequently she should be meeting with them. She also has a backup that, that she uses in order to schedule a lot of the social services that she might recommend for her members. So, you know, if she thinks that uh, maybe a member needs Meals on Wheels, she's got services, uh, another service that she can use to make those arrangements. So it's not Rain having to call and, and, and do the, the Meals on Wheels um, sign up. Um, so when we're doing service design, we do want to look at what's happening also behind the scenes, who are the backstage players and how are they impacting what's happening in the front stage? Um, so that, that service design allows us to kind of think about the experience as a whole um, versus just using one product at a certain point in time. How do you package that research into, you know, Renee and I in the previous segment talked about reports and, and presentations like how do you package that into something that you can hand someone or show someone? Is, is it a PowerPoint deck or is it something more? From my perspective, I think the journey map really is a major, a major player there because mm-hmm. it, it gives us a sense of how the user is interacting either with the service as a whole or even just with one, with one product. And we can identify areas where at that point in time, are they frustrated? Or is this something that is, is delighting them or making, their, making them more efficient? And 
so it's it's kind of that that big picture, that whole journey from from start to end of that experience uh, that I think is one of the, the the better deliverables that we can give to teams as a whole. Um, and then I loved they're a great tool to use to identify opportunities, right? So we see, okay, uh, Melissa, at the end of her day, she goes home and she has dinner with her family. But then later in the day, at night, she has to call all of her members that she is going to visit tomorrow. She needs to do the reminder call because if it's an automated call uh, the, or if it's a, a number that's not familiar in their caller ID, the member won't pick it up. So in order to successfully make a reminder call, the actual case manager has to do it herself. How can we, how can we fix that? How might we improve that so that Melissa doesn't have to work into the evening after already having a long and stressful day? Um, so where do, we, where do we find that empathy to really say she needs to not do that at the end of the day? Um, and the journey map, will include everything from what happens when she starts her day to when she ends her day. So I think that that's probably one of the more impactful documents. Thank you both. It's great, such a great conversation. And thanks, Jen, for sharing some of those stories and sharing your perspective with us. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great to be here. Yeah, listeners, you can check out Jen's article if you want to learn more. That's over on our website, designmuseumeverywhere.org, and we'll include a direct link in our show notes. And then, yeah, if you want to learn more about Optum, check out optum.com. Oh, now it's my favorite time of the week. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I will go first. So this week I wanted to mention Notion. It's a productivity app, sort of like an all-in-one cloud-based organizer. It's sort of like if you took... Google Docs, Trello, Airtable, Notes, and just roll it all into one piece of software. So you can easily make documents, to-do lists, databases. Um, you can do like cards on boards uh, and move those cards around. Uh, and everything is linkable and searchable. It's very emoji-based. So like your pages can have like an emoji that like you have a title, but then you can also have like an emoji for that uh, page. Um, I've mostly been using it as a to-do list, and it's helped me overcome one of my biggest to-do list traps, which I will share. So, you know, it's like you have a task, you have a couple tasks, and one task might be like, email this person, which takes like two seconds, but you might have another task, which is like, develop this program strategy. <laughs> and they're both like just two tasks on your list. So they occupy just the same space, sort of like in my mind and on my list. But of course, one takes about two seconds and the other one could take weeks, months. And so Notion has this great like toggle list feature. So, you know, your development list strategy to do can still occupy that same weight visually, but then you click on this little toggle and then all your subtasks can roll out. Uh, and then it makes it quite obvious that that task is more than just a two second thing. It's you're going to be working on it for weeks, months and kind of chipping away at it over time. So very cool. Anyway, there's a free forever account, so you can use it for your personal use. I highly recommend it. You can check it out at notion.so. Okay, Renee, you are up. Great. So this week's dose of design is the Iris Van Herpen Spring and Summer 2021 collection. The Iris Van Herpen 
collection for this season is particularly inspiring. I think a lot about how people are presenting themselves today. More and more people are augmenting themselves so that they can look the way that they feel uh, or the way that they identify. And when we think about where fashion is going, traditionally, fashion has been made on a sewing machine or it's been mm-hmm. woven. Mm-hmm. It's made out of clothes or it's made out of processed materials. And we wear it on our body and it protects us. But but Iris Van Herpen is a designer who really focuses on the flow of activity. And she creates these outfits that are there. It's a she's a couture designer and her atelier des- uh, develops these outfits that just feel otherworldly. And they feel like something you would see in a science fiction movie Whoa. or something that's, you know, uh, 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 computer generated, you know, animation. She works a lot with other Uh, people in other disciplines. And Mm. she works with like scientists and technologists and uh, to advance the state of uh, fashion design and to create new materials uh, that can help her her clothes take on that otherworldly feel. So this season's or the spring and summer uh, collection is called Roots of Rebirth. And I'll just, just read this. It's a collection that references the intricacy of fungi and the entanglement of life that breathes beneath our feet. Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> so lovely. <laughs> it's so lovely. When you look on the website, you can see all the pieces in the collection. And they really do draw upon sort of shapes that are representative of what you might see on the forest floor. And she uses things like glass organza. She uses 3D printed clothing. Uh, it, she creates lace that can stretch almost like an accordion. Wow. And the clothes are just unbelievable. She's able to sort of, she takes sort of an architectural mindset to the creation of, of clothes. And it's really exciting. It's couture right now, but who knows where, where it'll go in the future. Yeah, it is the future. Yeah. That's so awesome. I can't wait to check that out. Thank you so much for sharing. And thank you so much for being here. This was such a great conversation. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you, Sam. That's our show. I want to again thank Renee Geraci and Jen Schaefer for joining us. And thank you all for listening. We'll post Jen's article and some of the other resources we discussed today on our episode page. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. While you're on the website, we just released a really cool new product. So we recently announced the We Design Exhibition Conversation Cards, which is basically a card deck that is the exhibition. You can bring the exhibition home and see the entire thing on your table. It's filled with great stories about different types of designers and careers and people of different backgrounds. You can really get a lot from their quotes and it's just, it's so inspiring. And it's coupled with all this amazing information about diversity, equity, and inclusion, including key prompts and questions you can ask yourself. And really, I think it's a, a jumping off point for even further learning. So check out the We Design Exhibition Conversation Cards on our website. They're for sale right now and bring this awesome exhibition right into your home. You can always find the latest from the Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And we're on Instagram at design museum everywhere. We're also on Facebook and LinkedIn. And check out our email newsletter, goes out weekly. Always the latest news on what events are coming up, what's happening with Design Museum and more. Check that out, it's very easy to sign up right on our website. This episode was written and edited and produced by Amor Yates with production assistance by Ryan Flom. 
and editing support by Julia Christian. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the whole team here at the Design Museum, thanks for being here, and we'll talk again next week.